At this moment in time, I think it's their best record. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today's topic is, I think, my favorite record of the year. I know I've said Father John Misty's Pure Comedy is my favorite record of the year, and it's still in the running. I mean, we still have a lot of 2017 left, a lot of listening left to do. But this album, man, I love this album so much. It is a deeper understanding by the war on drugs. We're going to be talking about this record today. It came out on Friday. And uh, my guest is, is Dan DeLuca, who is uh, the longtime music critic at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Dan has been covering the war on drugs longer than most people, I would say. And uh, I was really curious to get his thoughts on the record. I know he was a fan, that he's a fan of it as well. Um, and also, you know, just his thoughts on how the war on drugs have evolved since their beginnings in the mid-2000s. You know, I thought he'd have good, good thoughts to share, and he did. It was a very informative conversation. So I'm excited to get to that. Uh, before we do, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week, and that is ZipRecruiter.com. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Well, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to up to 100 job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. So to encourage you, if you're looking for people to hire, you know, to try this site, we have a special deal for Celebration Rock listeners. If you go to ZipRecruiter.com celebration, you can post jobs on the site for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com celebration. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com celebration. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com celebration. And try out the site and get someone good for your job opening. So a deeper understanding by the war on drugs. I wrote about this record uh, on uprocks.com last week. I interviewed Adam from the band. Uh, we had a really great conversation. We talked for about an hour. Um, and we just talked about sort of the making of this record. I mean, it was a real opportunity for the war on drugs to really make the ultimate version of a war on drugs record. They signed to Atlantic Records in 2015. And among the benefits of working with a major label, I think, is that you get the cachet of a corporate backer and it, it enables you sometimes to do things that maybe you wouldn't be able to do when you're on an indie label. And, and in the case of the war on drugs, you know, they, they made this record in some of the best recording studios in the world, you know, including uh, United recording in Los Angeles, which is a historic studio, like where people were like Frank Sinatra has <laughs> recorded and um, Nat King Cole and all those greats. Uh, and they also worked at electric lady, in New York, of course, that was the studio funded by Jimi Hendrix, and it's the place where so many great rock records have been made, including Bruce Springsteen's records, you know, Born, Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town, two records that are near and dear to Adam's heart. And after all the time spent on this record and working in these great studios, what the result is, is this record that just sounds so huge and lush and has tremendous guitar solos and great synth sounds and great drum sounds and it just sounds like the ultimate version of sort of the vision questy heartland rock sound that the war on drugs has been refining on records like slave ambient in 2011 and of course lost in the dream from 2014 for me this is the best record that the war on drugs have made and i think it really puts them at the head of the line when we talk about american rock bands uh, for me, they've made three great records in a row, two of which I would call masterpieces, uh, A Deeper Understanding and Lost in the Dream. And on some days, I'll, I'd even say Slave Ambient should be in that same class. If it's not, it's just a, maybe a half step behind. Uh, so this is truly a record to celebrate and, and to analyze, and I, and I had a good time doing it with Dan. So without further ado, here is me and Dan talking about the war on drugs. So, Dan DeLuca, you're joining us today from Missoula, Montana. Yes. And I'm just wondering, I mean, like, were you so inspired by the new War on Drugs record that you were like, I got to hit the road, I have to see big skies as I, I listen to this record? A, that might have something to do with it, you know? <laughs> uh, I, I do have to say, like, I put, I made a mix and I put uh, Chris Whitley's Big Sky Country on it and I felt like it, 
didn't quite measure up to like the tunes on the War on Drugs record, you know, for like being perfectly suited for that landscape. And like, uh, yeah, the songs on the new record, I feel like they're they're like uh, they roll along like mountain roads. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, I wanted to have you on for many reasons, but. I thought you would have a really interesting perspective on the band because you know you've been at the Philadelphia Inquirer for a long time, and I'm assuming that you've you have a long history with the War on Drugs. You, you probably have maybe more of a perspective than a lot of people. I think many people came into the band with Lost in the Dream. Right. Uh, I became a fan. I, I I was on board fairly early. I I remember hearing Arms Like Boulders from Wagon Wheel Blues and uh-huh. being into it, and right. then uh, the Future Weather EP came out, and then. Slave Ambient was like the big record for me. Right, right. Um, when did they first pop up on your radar? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's with Wagon Wheel Blues, you know. Uh, I mean, that's, it's almost a decade ago now. So yeah. that's, that's uh, 2008. I, I was actually, as I was driving uh, yesterday, I was going back and listening to some of that earlier stuff, and it's sort of interesting to see. Uh, I, I think about what grabbed me at first, you know, and uh, and I, I think there was a Dylan thing you know, early on. It, it, it is still there, but was like in maybe a little more of a folky way at the time. Um, I, I, I'm sort of I'm sort of surprised when I went back at how I, I, I'm not going to say those songs were cluttered, uh, compa- but compared to how they are now, there's there's this like incredibly spacious elegance to them now um but yeah i I would say early on nine ten years ago they were like it was like whoa there's this new band um and and i guess and and at the time there was i I don't know if the association with kurt vile was clear in my mind at the time but uh people talked about uh adam in connection with kurt vile too back then so there's a sense of something creative going on with those dudes Kind of. <laughs> right. I mean, in terms of the Philadelphia music scene, which, by the way, I mean, I think anyone who's paying attention would agree that Philadelphia has been the rock capital of America for sure during the 2010s. I mean, I feel like, I mean, now you have bands like moving to Philadelphia, like bands that may, might have been in New York or something are sure. moving down to Philadelphia, maybe because it's a little bit cheaper or it's right. also where there's a lot more of a, there's just like a lot of heat on Philadelphia, a lot of attention. Like I know for me, if I see a band is from Philadelphia, that's almost like a seal of approval. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, this yeah, band's yeah, going to be cool. Yeah. And there's, there, there does seem to be a common aesthetic there where it's taking classic rock uh, uh, elements and like updating them and taking them in different directions. I mean, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, I mean, and, and, and you could say that about different, you, you could certainly say it about, uh, you know, the war on drugs and Kurt, and Steve Gunn, who comes from Philadelphia, though right. he doesn't live there, but grew up in a little town outside of Philadelphia, the same town as as Kirk did. Um, it's Lansdowne, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then a sort of precursor of that a band that was like put Philly, you know, on the map a little bit. Uh, a little before these guys, Doctor Dog, right. even. You know, um, and then there's the whole phenomenon. And then, I mean, another one who's a great example of that is Shearmag, uh, you know, who had to have their own strand of, of classic rock kind of, you know, from the sort of thin, thin Lizzy seventies riff rock thing, which is tremendous. Um, right. Yeah. And then there are all, there are, there's totally this phenomenon that you're alluding to, which is really, uh, about real estate, you know, and not the band real estate, but, but <laughs> like location, 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 real estate. Uh, and the, and like a perfect example of that, uh, would be, uh, Waxahachie and Allison Crutchfield, uh, and those, those two twin sisters, Katie Crutchfield and Allison Crutchfield, who uh, are from Alabama, moved to Brooklyn, and then found that Brooklyn is very expensive, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And and so they had a connection with, uh, I think, the drummer in 
maybe in Swearin, which was Alison Crutchfield's band, uh, lived in Philadelphia and didn't want to move. And, uh, and you could move to Philadelphia and live in a giant old Victorian house and have two or three bands live there and put a uh, recording rehearsal space recording studio in the basement and um, afford to to tour and and uh, you know and get along that way. So there there's sort of like a in my view like I've been covering music in Philadelphia for a few, few decades and, and the music scene there is by far, uh, particularly on the rock side, uh, uh, better than it's ever been. And, and a lot of that is because of, uh, the logic of, of living there. And then, you know, bands attract bands. And, right. uh, and that's true a little bit in, in Adam's case, it's a little bit different in with the war on drugs. Cause it, it's, it's sort of, but he grew up in Massachusetts, went to school in, in, uh, Pennsylvania before moving to Philadelphia. And he, he ended up there like in the mid two thousands or so. That's right. Back That's when, right. I mean, sort of pre Philadelphia being this it city for, for rock music. Correct. Correct. Yeah. He went to Dickinson college, uh, in Pennsylvania and, um, studied in art, which, which I think is one interesting thing is, is the way, if you think about the war on drugs in connection to like, uh, the way they, sort of paint landscapes and uh um and that he was like that was his initial um instinct was to be a visual artist uh and uh, those first couple slave ambient i think and maybe wagon wheel blues definitely slave ambient has a uh album cover that's a kind of a polaroid that that he took uh you know, or maybe maybe even with some sort of old fashioned camera but but anyway yeah he and then lived, I think, briefly in, in in California because the story he told me, I remember years ago, is that there's like, they were in, he and some buddies were like into like Gregory Corso and beat poetry and they were kind of, they were writing a dictionary, I think, of various terms in a, in a sort of like Ginsbergian way. <laughs> and one of the terms they defined was the war on drugs, you know, uh, not in the Nancy Reagan sense, but in some other more cosmic sense. And the, and he thought that's a great band name. Yeah. You know, it, you, you mentioned earlier talking about Wagon Wheel Blues, the sort of Dylan aspect that was, that you could hear even at that point. And mm-hmm. I think of a song like Arms Like Boulders, for instance. I mean, I think Adam kind of has a Dylan-esque, you know, whine in his voice uh-huh. anyway. And that uh-huh. song, of course, it has the harmonica in there. It's this sort right. of like very boisterous Kind of, it, it's this kind of. It, it's really the war on drugs at their rootsiest on that song. But at the same uh-huh. time, you know, the war on drugs, like their early aesthetic, was this sort of combination of, you know, I guess like a heartland rock type sound, and then just pure sort of like ambient noise. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think the big difference between, say, those early records and a deeper understanding is that those long sort of instrumental, you know, segues that existed even on Lost in the Dream, have been excised. You know, that, that aspect of the band has really been taken out, and it's much more on the songs. And right. as you said, like you mentioned the spaciousness of the songs on a deeper understanding. And I know when I talked to Adam uh, about the record, that was one thing that he thought was really important, that maybe early on he had this idea that if you had a song, you had to fill up every nook and cranny with sound. And he's definitely a guy that layers sounds versus, you know, recording a band live in the studio. And he's still layering sounds, but he's found a way to do it where he can kind of maximize the bigness of it without cluttering it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. When I read your piece and, and you, you talked with him about how many great guitar solos there are on the record, and and yet they don't strike you as like, okay, here's the long guitar solo. <laughs> right. You know? I mean, even in an 11-minute song, which is kind of amazing that way. Like, if you, on the one hand, like, when thinking of a place, which is the first single, or I guess not the single, but the first music that was released from from A Deeper Understanding, which came out as this, like, double-sided vinyl on Record Store Day, and, and it was great signal that they weren't about to like 
cut their sound down to size or something <laughs> for you know for now that they're signed to Atlantic. But right. but like on that record, you when you hear oh eleven minute song, on the one hand you might think oh cool eleven minute song, but the a person who likes economy and pop music might think that's going to be like a wanky long guitar solo thing and and it's not it's like it's the pacing of the songs and the 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 sort of craft of the of the arrangements is so effective that like you don't think you don't start looking at your watch right right and i know like he talked about how you know because i think a lot of the writing that's done about about adam is this idea of him being this sort of studio bound perfectionist type person and I thought it was interesting, like when I talked to him, that when it came to the guitar solos on the record, that a lot of those were recorded live. It's like maybe one of the only things that, uh, like when he was, because like you know, it sounds like he would kind of track with the band and then just kind of do a lot of overdubs. But then uh, with the guitar solos, a lot of those he just kind of left in uh-huh. uh, rather than try to finesse them. And I'm thinking of a place, you know, there are notes in that solo that are sort of off kilter and maybe even off key, but it really adds to the resonance of that. You know, there's something really expressive about the guitar playing on the record, yeah. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your piece was, uh, the, the, you, I know you opened to talk about this whole thing with uh, about Springsteen and Jimmy Iovine and, and the idea of, of making, uh, obsessively working in the studio in order to try to make something that then sounds spontaneous. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's really... It's true, particularly with the, those live guitar solos that add that element. Um, when, I, when I talked to Adam, he talked a little bit about how, you know, this record was uh, sort of began in L.A. where he moved, and uh, he's always kind of worked in isolation in the studio as sort of the auteur himself, and then worked with the band members bringing them in individually and in this sense uh in this instance he was literally physically isolated from everybody and that he was 3000 miles away uh and because the, everybody else lives in Philadelphia still and uh but then he also talked about how he need, he came back to and worked in, in studios in New York and and worked with uh, an engineer that he worked with before. Because the way he put it to me is that he wanted to get a little like like East Coast mud on the record, <laughs> right. uh, a little bit of grit. I think he was a little bit concerned with things being too smooth uh, and 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 making sure that there was that element of. Uh, spontaneity and risk uh and and that it didn't seem too polished um so that that's, there's a little tug of war there i think that is interesting and also there's this interesting balance with like uh the a man alone and and the band and like and trying to find and keeping the band together while also having that individual vision right yeah like i you know one th- like the way you put it to me is that the band is like the unit that reinterprets the recorded material right? <laughs> you know, when they go out. You know, I read your piece that you wrote for the Inquirer where you talked to Adam uh, about the record and, and your piece, you know, very fitting for, 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 you know, writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer w- was pretty Philly centric and talking right. about what you just mentioned about, you know, I mean, cause like for lost in the dream, that record famously started uh, in Adam's home studio, like he lived in this big house where all of his gear was and he was working by himself a lot and then they eventually moved to a studio. But, you know, Philadelphia was, was a big part of uh, his life for a long time. And then once Lost in the Dream, that album cycle kicked in, you know, they went on tour. And I think as he says in your story, like they went on tour and he never really went home. Like right. he ended up moving you know, to Brooklyn and then he was in LA for more than a year working on the record. And I mean, it sounds like the band still has a base in Philadelphia. It sounds like they have like a rehearsal space there. And I think some other band members might still live there, but I'm wondering like, how do you see, I guess the influence of that city on the war on drugs music? Uh, do you feel like that's a pivotal part of like what kind of made them who they are? Yeah. 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 In, in a way. I mean, certainly he has, uh, his, there, there's a grit. I think there's a, there's a feistiness there. I, I, I think he has, 
Adam, personally, it's interesting because I think he, I think there's a little bit of an, there's an underdog thing that happens in Philadelphia. You yeah. know, there's, there's like, yo, give us a little, some, some respect, would you? You know? <laughs> right. You know? Like, uh, We're throw know, batteries I got your, great, you. I got your right, great rock band right here, okay? <laughs> We're going to throw batteries at you, Santa, if you don't uh, like well, our band. Yeah, yeah, right. Though, yeah, yeah. True, true, true. <laughs> That's, uh, but, 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 so there, there's that. There's also this sense, I think, of that you could work under the radar a little bit, you know? Um, and that, that he, and, and, and that you work extra hard, uh, you know, because there is a, uh, sort of something in the Philadelphia DNA about uh, you're not sure, you know, you know, you're not in New York and you know, you're not in LA and you know, it's hard to be like really fabulous in Philadelphia, uh, <laughs> right. you know? Uh, so, so there's that. And, and then uh, uh, even within, uh, like, I think the, there's this interesting, you know, uh, Adam and Kurt dynamic in, in it. And, and to, to give people a little background on that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of times it's written as if like Kurt was a member of the war on drugs and then he quit or something. And, um, but what it really was, was that they, when they, when Adam moved to Philly, became friends with Kurt and they worked very closely together, uh, just on, on each other's music. And, uh, they, but, but it was always each other's music and, and Adam's was the war on drugs and Kurt's was Kurt Vile. Uh, and, and Kurt sort of, made a name for himself and got signed to Matador first. Uh, but they, as long as they were around and available for each other, they each helped each other out, you know? Uh, but I think one of the things that's instructive there is that Kurt uh, has always, like, carried himself like a rock star, you know? Like, yeah. like, like there's a... Uh, what is it? The, one of the early records is uh, Constant Hitmaker. <laughs> right. Know? And uh, whereas Adam, I think there's like self-doubt is part of the, the equation, you know, and, and building into the confidence that, that yes, this stuff is really good uh, and, um, and, and sort of so, – so there's that element of determination, of uh, hard work that pays off in – in uh that is now paying off certainly in like both uh, uh great music and and a growing wide audience and and respect that to do but but there's a little bit of that chip on a shoulder thing and 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 also dedication to craft i'll give you one another little philly factoid that's really interesting <laughs> is that there's a place in philadelphia in fishtown this like amazing pizzeria called uh Pizzeria Badia, uh, and this guy who who makes like forty pies a night, and that's it. And he doesn't have a phone, and uh, he, uh, you know, you you have to show up and uh, and and order your pizza, and and he doesn't expand beyond that. Anyway, he's gotten, I think, food and wine, or one of these places named it the best pizza in America, uh, and it's it's like very craftsmanlike. It's 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 like almost like an, a monk working on making pizza. And Joe Badia and Adam were roommates when Adam first moved to town um, and like 10, 12 years ago. And so there's, here's, there's examples of these two guys who uh, both work obsessively on doing the thing that they, they do with experimentation and, and focus. And, and then that pays off in, in producing a product that is of, you know, unquestionable quality. And, uh, and, and so I think there's a, uh, and, and there's, and, and also they're both like, I'm not sure where Joe is from originally, but there is this sense that of people who have been able to come to Philadelphia in all sorts of cultural fields and sort of in, with an indie aesthetic in, since in this millennium and, uh, and sort of incubate in, in somewhat, uh, you know, of, uh, of an environment that allows you to, to work on your craft until it's so good that the world needs it to take notice. All right, we'll be back with Dan to talk more War on Drugs in a minute, but I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week's episode, and that is our friends at Blue Apron. 
Blue Apron, of course, is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and they achieve this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Now, the way this works is you sign up with Blue Apron, they send you these fresh, delicious ingredients, and they tell you how to make great dinners. If you're like me, you have a busy life, maybe you, you have kids, it's hard to plan meals, and it's nice to have this service that hooks everything up for you. They bring it right to your door. They tell you how to make it, and uh, you end up with delicious meals. Just check out some of the upcoming uh, stuff that they have on the menu. They have summer vegetable and egg paninis with Calabrian chili mayonnaise and Capri salad. My goodness, are you going to make that on your own? I don't think so. What about the soy glazed pork and rice cakes or the skillet veg- vegetable chili or the garlic butter shrimp and corn and green bean salad? and roasted purple tomatoes. I need an oxygen machine to read all of these delicious dishes. They're so complicated, and yet they're so simple, uh, and they're so, so tasty. Uh, To try out Blue Apron, I have a special deal for you, my Celebration Rock Pod listeners. All you need to do is you go to blueapron.com slash celebration, and you can check out this week's menu, and and you can get your first three meals for free with free shipping. Again, just go to blueapron.com slash celebration, that's blueapron.com slash celebration, and you can get three meals for free with free shipping. That is a great, great deal for great, great food. All right, let's get back to me and Dan talking about the war on drugs. I want to go back to the, the Kurt-Adam uh, dynamic thing, uh-huh. because I think, I think people that are fans of the war on drugs tend to be fans of Kurt Vile. Sure. Um, and I know personally I'm always fascinated by their relationship and how they've kind of fed off of each other. It, I, your, your point is really interesting talking about Kurt kind of carrying himself like a rock star, which I think is really true. Mm-hmm. I also think that Adam in right now is making like the more popular records. And it seems right. like his records are sort of more geared towards the masses than Kurt's are. Like, you know, I love all of Kurt Biles albums, but to me, he's almost like a Neil Young type figure where he's going to kind of go on his own path no matter what. And I don't ever see him making the kind of big, lush-sounding records that Adam is making. Not that Adam is pandering to mainstream taste in any respect. I think what he's doing is also really really idiosyncratic. But he almost has, again, that kind of Springsteen-Tom Petty gene in him where he can make uber-personal music sound universal. Right. Um, and whereas Kurt, I think, is always going to be Kurt. You know, it's so distinctively who he is in kind of like that Neil Young kind of way. Right, though... though uh... I agree with that, uh, but I also think, like, that Kurt has a gift for, like, these individual, like, nugget songs that are that are super catchy right. and, and could be singles, hit singles, you know, in a way. Like, uh, and, you know, Waking on a Pretty Day, or, and also, uh, and even more so, Pretty Pimpin', you know? Right. That, that, like, he has the ability to write, like... And I guess you could say this is like Neil Young too, like 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 an almost perfect pop song. Um, but there's always, bit. but I always feel like there's going to be an element in Kurt Vile's things, like even when he writes those beautiful pop songs, there's going to be some sort of weird curveball in there yeah. that will not. I don't want to say sabotage it, but will not. Maybe it'll keep it maybe from hitting like on a mass level. Sure, it, sure. That's my feeling with him. I could be totally wrong with that, but. To me, that's such an interesting dichotomy between those two guys. My favorite story about about Kurt Vile and, and Adam is that uh, Dave Hartley told me this story. Dave Hartley, the basis of the War on Drugs, who's mm-hmm. been a guest on this podcast, friend of the pod. Dave. Oh, was he on the podcast? Yeah. He was, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, give a shout out to Dave if he's listening. Um, he told me the story about how like one night he came back to the house. I think it was Adam's house, and Adam and Kurt were hanging out, and there may have been some drinks happening, and maybe some other things happening, and. They were both listening to Born in the USA and then the first Suicide Record. (laughs) And I love that story because I feel like that encapsulates their aesthetic. You Uh know, this idea of, you know, the epitome of arena rock and then the epitome of sort of experimental, weird underground music and finding somewhere in the middle. And I think that's where those guys both started. And it's been fascinating to watch their own sort of 
idiosyncratic paths away from that, like yeah. where, where they've taken that aesthetic in their own ways. Right. I think it's been really fascinating. Right, right, right. Yeah, I would agree with that. The, I mean, with Adam, too, it's like the... Uh, it, it's true. Like, I was listening back to, like, Silly Vambian a little bit uh, the other day, and, there, and there's some, like, pretty noisy stuff on there, you know? And uh, um, and then, um, you know, there's also the element of, like, the German, like, motorik, or however you pronounce that word, or, you know, it would, a word that may be is not in fashion as much anymore. Krautrock, you right. know, but the, uh, uh, of like Kraftwerk and, and Neu, you know, that, that whole driving music, the insistent, uh, you know, unrelenting, uh, like, you know, ambient, uh, touches electronics in there. And, and I, I actually think there's a little less of that, uh, sort of, uh, uh, obviously present influence on the new record than maybe on Lost in a Dream, but uh, but I do think there's that that sort of insistent moving on, moving towards some you know uh, distant horizon push in the War on Drugs music, and he's at this really interesting place of like taking those influences and then turning it into. Uh, something that is accessible to people who might not have ever heard that stuff or, or you know, might not have ever known that that existed uh, and potentially work on a real mainstream level. Yeah, I mean, and I think you're totally right. And, you know, and I, I touched on that earlier, that element of sort of the the ambient soundscapes that you hear on older War on Drugs songs, which often act as segues between songs or, you know, there'll be a song and then they, there's maybe like a minute or two of just sort of, murky sounding atmospheric sound and i mean that was really pronounced on slave ambient where i mean practically between every song there's like a minute or two of just um you know this sort of like rhythmic noise going on yeah but then even on you know lost in the dream you know you get to the end of under pressure and there's you know that song ends up being i think around eight minutes long just because there's like this sort of droney noise at the end and it and that really is like part of the beauty of those records this you know this feeling that these like great salt of the earth songs are kind of rising up from the murk and then they go back into the murk and then another song rises up um almost like a continuous experience happening um but yeah on on deeper understanding i feel like a lot of that is is gone certainly the segues are gone some of that maybe is integrated more into the songs themselves and 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 maybe you know buried a little bit more but it, it really is like a songs record yeah um for you, I mean, as someone who's been listening to the band for a long time, how do you feel like this record compares to the other albums? I mean, do you feel like this is the best record, or do you think Lost in the Dream is still better? Like, where do you... I do, do you... think, I th- at this moment in time, I think it's their best record. Uh, but I do think that respect needs to be paid to Lost in the Dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, there's a little bit of this... Uh, uh, hey, there was this great band that came out of nowhere <laughs> thing going on uh, that I think is, is is not what's happened, obviously. You know, like, uh, they're not, like, because I think Lost in the Dream is a great record. Um, but I I think that this is just, you know, what's interesting about, one of the things that's interesting to me about them is that they... They sort of to go back to the Neil Young thing. There's a little bit of this element, I think, of with the war on drugs. You, you know, the the Neil Young thing that he blurts out on one of the live records. Of it's all just one song. Is that what it is? <laughs> Am I quoting that correctly? Uh, you know, but that element of it, it's all like one giant piece of work that where everything flows into into another, and uh, there's no. The war and drugs don't do aren't doing some sort of like self-conscious form of of oh my god I need to reinvent myself. They 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 build on on what they what they've done in the past in this way that if you don't go back and uh, and check out the way and listen to the old stuff and see how the progression has worked, you might think that their the changes haven't been that profound. But in fact, they have been profound and very organic and natural, you know? And uh, so I think that a lot of those elements uh, 
there's a, a great like synthesis of them going on on this record where there are all the, all the ambient influences and experimental influences, but they've all they've coalesced in beautiful songs in this record uh, in a way that I, I don't know I, I think refines what they do and makes it more accessible and and more powerful uh, and and just like. The, the, like the drama on this record is, and, and the, the majesty of the songs is, it's pretty awesome. All right, we'll be back with Dan to talk more War on Drugs in a minute, but I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week's episode. It's our good friends at SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just use SeatGeek to buy tickets to see Jason Isbell in Madison. He's going to be playing there Labor Day weekend. I've actually seen Jason twice already this year, but uh, the shows were so phenomenal that he's just one of those people that I'm going to see if he's in my area. So I use SeatGeek to buy those tickets, and uh, it was a great way to do it. And I think you guys should check it out too. And uh, I have a special deal for listeners of this podcast. All you have to do is you download the SeatGeek app and you enter in the promo code CELEBRATION today. That's promo code CELEBRATION, and you will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. I know you guys go to a lot of concerts because you listen to this podcast. If you're going to buy a ticket anyway, why not try this app? Get the $20 off if you download the app and just punch in CELEBRATION. So, again, that's a special deal for the listeners of this podcast. Don't say I never hooked you guys up. All right, let's get back to me and Dan talking about the war on drugs. I think a lot of people look at Lost in the Dream as sort of being the beginning of the band, and then like this is almost like their second record coming out. Right. You know, a deeper understanding where I think it is worth taking the totality of the band's history into account. Um, you know, I don't think Wagon Wheel Blues, for instance, is as good as the later records, but it is fascinating to listen to that record and to really see how this band's sound is almost like a sculpture that has been yeah. gradually you know chipped away and you know from this sort of blob of clay to something that has really turned into this immaculate you know piece yeah, of work yeah. yeah um yeah that's a good way to put it i mean uh, you know you mentioned the drama on the record i just think of like for me my favorite song is strangest thing like when uh, i heard when i heard that song uh yeah i got a promo of the of the record a couple months ago and i remember listening to strangest thing and just playing that song six or seven times in a row because it was it was dusk and it just seemed like the perfect time to listen to that song uh you know because it's this this slow building thing where you have a great kind of kick drum sound and it's very slow and you know it, it the first two minutes you're maybe not quite sure where the song goes and then this great kind of chiming guitar comes in and the song goes up a level and then there's like the first guitar solo the song goes up a level and then you have this amazing guitar solo at the end, which just comes in like, you know, and I mean this as a compliment, it's like Slash coming in on November rain, you know, it's like this, you know, I, I feel like, man, if the war on drugs, if they're ever going to be like in a Michael Bay movie, like when like the asteroid gets blown up, it's going to be the guitar solo at the end of Strangest Thing. Like yeah, it's so yeah. dramatic and it's like my, like, like this is my favorite record of the year, but that guitar solo entry is my favorite music moment of the year. Like uh -huh, that gave me uh -huh. chills. You know, it's, and it still gives me chills when I hear that it's so big and bold and you know, it, they did it in a way where they didn't sort of, uh, you know, sort of make it sound too clean and, and sort of kill the vibe of it. It just enhanced it so much. It just like, okay, let's, let's take, you know, a notion between the waves like that, kind of the drama of that guitar solo at the end of that song. Which from it, the last record. From, from Lost in the Dream. And let's just take it up another level. Let's just see how much we can maximize the emotional payoffs on our album. And, and they found a way to do that. And it's interesting to think like where they're going to go from here if they do have to take a radical you know, turn or you know, are they just going to hire like Bob Clearmountain 
and have the total <laughs> bo- go full born in the USA. Yeah, yeah. You know, it have a just pristine sounding thing. I don't know what, but yeah, for yeah, now, I'm yeah. just going to enjoy it's, this it's record. It's interesting with that. With Bob, we mentioned that Bob Clear Mountain that uh, he didn't. Adam didn't mention him by name, but he was talking about working with. Okay, so he has a real history sense of like. Uh, he's a student of history of 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 classic rock and album making, you know, yeah. um, and when where the band fits in with that that sort of thing. And uh, I think he, as he was he was working with Sean Everett, an engineer in uh, California, uh, and, and sort of felt like he was off on his own. And it was very fruitful collaboration. Everything was working out nicely in a nice studio. But he also wanted to go back and work with people that he had worked on before. And one of the things he said to me, he said, he's like, if you look at, uh, like, at Darkness on the Edge of Town and The River, <laughs> you know, you see the same people worked on those records, you know, that, that this you have this uh, sense of... Uh, uh, he, I think he has that uh, sense of continuity that he wants uh, with people he works with, but he's also thinks about uh, the his band and 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 uh, and how it relates to great artists of of another period, really, uh, in terms of like how rock albums were made. And they're, I guess they're a little bit, I mean, do you think, do you see them as like the Warner Brothers outliers that way at all in, in their connection to uh, the way they think, of, of, position themselves as like album rock artists compared to the way music is made today and marketed today or, or no, do you think it's a part of a larger thing? You know, it's fascinating because whenever I talk to artists and this is artists in any genre, I think, I think most of them think in terms of albums still. Mm -hmm. And you know, I mean, I feel like one of the reasons why albums still exist is because artists want to make albums. Right. And even pop artists, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of albums as sort of, statement albums that have come out in pop music in the last several years even if people know in their heart of hearts maybe that you know on spotify people are just going to pull out the songs that they that they like and maybe not take the total thing into account um i think what's interesting to me about the war on drugs is that unlike a lot of bands that are influenced by classic rock that the war on drugs is able to make songs that have the spirit of Springsteen and Petty and Neil Young and yet they don't really sound like those bands like I don't think if you played Deeper Understanding next to Damn the Torpedoes or Darkness on the Edge of Town you know you could tell one from the other I mean it's different to me it's almost like um, and I think this is true of of, of Kurt Vile as well that there is almost like a post-apocalyptic lens through which to view the music like it sounds like a little it always sounds like a little bombed out or like it's it's like classic rock that's being played on like a transistor radio in the middle of the rubble you know yeah yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah you know what i mean yeah. it's like those, those, a transistor radio that sounds really good on this record yeah exactly <laughs> I, mean, I mean sonically and i would say like a deeper understanding what separates it from lost in the dream is that to me lost in the dream is almost like an homage to to, to arena rock in this album i think actually kind of approaches actual arena rock like it like the sound like the, the, the sort of like noisy aspects of what the war on drugs did that sort of subverted maybe traditional classic rock like that has slowly been pulled away and right. but but at the same time again like not purely imitating something that happened no, before no, totally not you know? it's, like it's not slavish in no. any way. you know what i mean it's not it's not like you know uh sort of like even even if you like, there's I can't remember what song it is. I, there's like a little bit of an organ that comes in or a keyboard that comes in, and it made me think of Dire Straits. And then nothing you know? defined. Yeah, I think yeah. it's that song. Yeah, that yeah. song has that. But uh, but yeah, at the same time, it's like th- there's always something else added to it that just takes it in a different direction that makes it feel like it's the 21st century and yeah. not trying to replicate 1977 yeah. or yeah. something. I, it's going to be really interesting to see how big they get, I think. You know, like, like there's a whole... Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a potentially huge, older classic rock audience that 
I think would it would take a shine to them if they heard them. Yeah, uh, and uh, so there there is that element. There there isn't really, you know, like like I I don't know if 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 there's a radio market for them as much as uh, you know radio still exists. Yeah. Uh, to reach a mass audience, like I don't, I don't know if they can make it on, because they're not hit songs, really. Uh, but, but the songs are so big, you know. I, I think Adam talked to you about this, and he talked to me about it a little bit. How he likes to be in, the, like, the, the band was able. He was thrilled, I think, on the last tour that they played a lot of really big rooms, and then they he was able to feel that there's like an intimacy and a beauty uh, that that happens when they make music in those large spaces. Right. And, and I, certainly I think these songs are made for those big spaces. Yeah, I, I, I think an advantage that they have is that unlike a lot of indie bands, I think the war on drugs is actually enhanced by being in a bigger room where the sound can actually fill up a space. Like I, right. I, I've seen them play clubs, I've seen them play theaters, I, I've seen them play big theaters and the big theater ones were my favorite uh, uh-huh. just because the sound was enveloping. Like it just felt so expensive right. and in a club, you know, it's just harder to get that kind of effect. I mean, to go back to your, your thing about how big they're going to get, I mean, that's always a hard proposition to predict. I, to me, it's almost more important to talk about longevity. Like, are they a band that will be able to sustain themselves in five years, 10 years? You know, will he be one of those bands that becomes like a touchstone? And I really feel like they can be. I, I to me, what puts them over the top, they have the consistency that they have established on certainly these, these last three records. But you know, you talk to people that love this band, and there's a strong connection. You know, mm-hmm. people loved Lost in the Dream. The people that love that record listen to that record obsessively, and I am sure that a deeper understanding is going to create that same kind of connection and and to speak to your point too about like sort of older music fans you know for people that sort of listen to contemporary music and maybe they're not sure where they fit in or if they hear anything that resonates with them the way that records did for them maybe when they were younger i do think the war on drugs does have that kind of potential to hit a chord emotionally um where maybe some other bands haven't sure Um, it's like a record you could give to your uncle for Christmas. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you, you and your cool uncle can go, you know, maybe different generations can go see the war on drugs. Totally. Totally. Um, Cause yeah. you know, cause you know, they definitely, I think draw an older crowd, but I, it is interesting to me that I, I see a lot of younger music fans getting, getting into them too. Maybe. Oh, sure. Oh, totally. Maybe. Totally. I mean, I think that's the base. It's certainly the base in, in Philadelphia, you know, uh, but but you could see as it as it goes wide that uh, you know I don't know I mean I could see them playing amphitheaters next summer. It's gonna be interesting here. They're doing uh, in or in Philadelphia, not here because I'm in Montana. But uh, <laughs> in in Philadelphia, I'll give a little plug for this. They're doing a uh, a show. Um, they're they're sort of record release show on September 21st is is this benefit for uh, the Connor Barwin, who is a, formerly a Philadelphia Eagle. I know you're a football fan, aren't you, Stephen? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. see, I'm a Packers fan, so I, I hate know the that. Eagles. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the wor- guy. Yeah, the worst game of my life was against the Eagles. The fourth is that and, right? The fourth and 26 game. Ooh. That's the worst. <laughs> Fred X, well, Fred, Freddie Mitchell. Well, maybe like the set, like, actually the, the, that uh, championship game, the 2015 championship, that's the worst one now, the Brandon Bostic fumble. Right. You know, but 4th and 26 scarred me. And you know, the Eagles and Packers were sparring a lot in the early to mid-2000s yeah, during yeah, the McNabb yeah. years. So yeah, I hate your team. I love your city, but I hate the Eagles. Well, but you know, you can't complain uh, for a <laughs> second because you, you've been blessed with an amazing football tradition and, and like the greatest quarterback in the NFL right now. I mean, come on. I'm we, so, see, I, I love, I love, he, I love hearing like 1960. That's true. <laughs> I'm just saying, I love hearing someone from Philadelphia talk about how great the Packers are. This just makes, well, they me, are. They're, you know, this makes my day. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but anyways, interestingly, uh, 
Connor Barwin, who played for the Eagles and is now playing for the Rams this year, but has played, uh, staged these amazing benefit shows because uh, he's a huge rock fan, an indie rock fan, over the past few years, the, the very first of which uh, Kurt Vile headlined. Uh, and they've been in, in like a medium-sized club called Union Transfer in Philadelphia. And this year it's going to be in a uh, – this kind of inner city amphitheater uh, that they're going to, that's existed for years that's spruced up uh, called the Dell music center where they're trying to uh, gonna have rock shows and it's raises money uh, like a ton of money uh, for uh, parks and recreation stuff for kids in the inner city. And uh, so they're playing uh, the war drugs are playing there, but it's going to be a, like a 6,000 uh, seat outdoor thing and and i i just think they're they could play really sound great in in uh spaces like that i i can imagine them you know playing those kind of shed like rooms say next summer yeah. uh, and 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 the bands that fill those spaces tend to be you know older classic rock bands there aren't that many young bands that can can do that and i certainly can see them being one of those bands well man this this Gig in Philly sounds awesome. I want to. Oh, it's gonna be trying. It, yeah, it's gonna be really cool. I want really cool. I'm gonna get in my car and just drive. You should do that. And listen to War on Drugs the whole way. You should do that. On, you know, on and, a Vision uh, Quest. Maybe we can go to an Eagles game. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, Dan, thank you so much for taking time out, out of your trip here out west to talk to me. It's been awesome talking to you about the War on Drugs. Yeah, it's been cool. Great. I appreciate I appreciate you asking me. It's been fun. And uh, do you want to give a quick plug for your podcast? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I write for the Philadelphia Inquirer and Philly.com, but I also have this podcast with Dan Reed uh, from WXPN in Philadelphia, and it's re- the name of it is really easy to remember because it's called the Dan and Dan Music Podcast. There you go. Yeah, and you, Stephen Hyden, are a friend of the Dan and Dan Music Podcast, and I am proud to now be a friend of the Celebration Rock Podcast. Podcast-making friends. you got to exactly. love it. It's beautiful. <laughs> All right, Dan. Hey, thanks again, right, man. Thanks. Take care. Take care. All right, that was me and Dan DeLuca from the Philadelphia Inquirer talking about the war on drugs, a deeper understanding. If you have not heard the record yet, get on your nearest streaming device or grab a CD or a vinyl and listen to it now and absorb it and love it. It is a great, great record. One of the, I think, records that we're going to think about when we talk about 2017, looking back. Um, Guys, I say this every episode, but I, I mean it, and it's important for me to say it. We would not have a show uh, without you listening. And I appreciate it so much that you guys have continued to support this podcast, uh, that you've continued to talk about us on social media, that you review our podcast on iTunes, uh, that you just tell your friends about us. You know, I hear this all the time. Like my friend likes the show. They told me about it and I checked it out. Um, thank you so much guys for doing that. Uh, we have a great audience and it, it, it keeps this podcast going. So thank you so much for doing that. And uh, thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, This was a lot of fun, and uh, we will look forward to uh, talking at you next week.